Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Department of State Division of Historical Resources and the State of Florida. It's also made possible by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund, the Rossiter House Museum and Gardens in O'Galley, and by Florida's Space Coast Office of Tourism, representing destinations from Titusville to Cocoa Beach to Melbourne Beach. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, on the web at myfloridahistory.org. I'm Ben Broatmarkle, and coming up on this week's program, hundreds of canoes have been discovered in Florida, some created as long as 7,000 years ago. It's exciting when the public gets excited about canoe research, and it's really fun because we don't have to sell it. It's just, by nature, pretty thrilling to Floridians to learn about something like boats, boat making, and this tradition that goes back thousands of years. We'll discuss a collection of early 20th century newsletters published by the Episcopal Church in Florida. There's a lot of great information about individual parishioners. So this is a wonderful resource for genealogical research. And we'll talk about the Veterans Legacy Program at the Florida National Cemetery in Bushnell. All that ahead on Florida Frontiers. For thousands of years, people living in Florida have used canoes for travel, hunting, and fishing. Some of these ancient vessels have been preserved in anaerobic environments, allowing modern archaeologists to study them. Hundreds of canoes have been discovered in Florida, some created as long as 7,000 years ago. Advancements in science and technology are allowing us to learn more about these canoes and about our history. Steve Karasik is with the Florida Bureau of Archaeological Research. The canoes are just one example of uh, many different opportunities that archaeology has to better understand the past and how people would have experienced life hundreds or thousands of years ago. And so what we're trying to do with the canoes and with all of the other artifacts that we work with is to add a depth of understanding to our shared uh, human experience. What it would have been like to move through these same waterways that we see now uh, a thousand years ago, five thousand years ago, what uh, previous humans would have experienced, how they would have interacted with, with the world around them. And so the canoe is a really important piece in that puzzle, and so this is why we've spent so much time and energy trying to understand and preserve this very important piece of cultural heritage. Carla Hayden is with the University of Georgia Center for Applied Isotope Studies and does radiocarbon dating of objects, including canoes. The ability to make and use canoes says a lot about how people got around in the world, the speed with which they could move, how far they could go, the kind of resources they had access to. So this tells us that this maritime tradition, this, this way of life of taking advantage of rivers and canoes for traversing bodies of water, this has a really great antiquity in the southeast. At least 7,000 years ago, people were building these canoes of a very similar design as they were 500 years ago. So this is a really ancient tradition. Uh, this coastal way of life is a really uh, kind of essential part of the coastal life way. Lori Collins creates 3D images of landscapes and artifacts, including canoes, at the University of South Florida. 
What I think is exciting is um, this kind of opportunity where we have these different types of researchers coming together because it's those multiple lines of evidence, you know, from the dating, the dendrochronology, and the 3D imaging. And if we're all kind of looking at things and, and maybe coming to the same, you know, areas that make sense, uh, I think it's much more powerful if we have those multiple lines of indication. Um, and what's interesting with the, the 3D is that it allows us to kind of forensically look at well, okay, is that possible? Um, what would that look like? Uh, so I think it's a, a nice uh, foundation to kind of build upon, a platform to build upon all of these other scientific endeavors. Julie Duggins and Franklin Price are with the Florida Bureau of Archaeological Research. When we get a call about a dugout canoe, the first thing we do is we ask some questions. We want to know where it was found. We want to know how somebody found it, what the condition is currently. And we always tell people to leave it in place. The canoe has been safe there for hundreds, if not thousands of years. It's been preserved in an anaerobic context. And the safest place for it to be is right where it is. Only if it's threatened and only if there's very good reason and steps put in place to conserve it, care for it, and then ultimately display it, do we remove it from that original context. Usually it's a member of the public who calls us to let us know about the discovery of a canoe and what we always stress is to leave it in place. We want to keep it there to safeguard it. It's been there for hundreds if not thousands of years and it's usually the best place for it. Uh, when we investigate it we'll get measurements from it and note its typology and if we feel like it is needed to be moved for uh, conservation purposes we'll bring it to the conservation lab here in Tallahassee. The first thing that's really changed in canoe research and canoe conservation and preservation is awareness. Uh, and in the 1980s, the University of Florida did a large project to try to gather information about dugout canoes. And through putting ads in newspapers and contacting people and getting information, they really put the word out there that if you find a canoe, the best thing to do is report it. So that's the number one thing that's changed. And in terms of preservation, some techniques have come about that, that now are doing a much better job of preserving canoes than say some of the early techniques like soaking in sugar water. We're not really doing that anymore, but people made do with the best they had at the time. And that at the time, perhaps turpentine and linseed oil uh, were the methods of the day. And now we would rather treat it in a lab under conditions that can one, be reversed, and two, are gonna be more stable over time. Well, there are a few different things that are done, but the one that I'm most familiar with is polyethylene glycol used as a consolidant because over time, often the cellular structure of a canoe has been degraded, especially if it's been wet, and polyethylene glycol acts as a wax that fortifies the internal structure. Unfortunately, we did lose some data due to methods that weren't ideal in the early days. Uh, an example of that is a canoe that's now fragmented into a lot of pieces. It was preserved with the sugar method, quote unquote. Uh, and it's now a very greasy and probably sweet, if you were to taste it, small fragmented pieces of wood. Um, and, and that's from one of our oldest canoe sites, De Leon Springs. In 2000, the world's largest discovery of ancient canoes happened at Noonan's Lake near Gainesville. Carla Hayden. The best known site for canoes in Florida is the Noonan's Lake site east of Gainesville. Um, there was a period in the early 2000s of really extreme drought, really low water levels in the lake, and people who lived in the area just started finding all these canoes one after another, and they eventually, over the course of several months, excavated something like 100 canoes 
and they radiocarbon dated, I think, 55 of those. And those spanned everywhere from 500 years old to 6,000 years old. So it really had the whole spectrum up until historic times nearly. When most people think of canoe archaeology, probably the first thing to come to mind is the thrill of discovery and the subsequent fieldwork. But the reality is that most archaeology is done in laboratories, like the Bureau of Archaeological Research Conservation Lab in Tallahassee. Steve Karasik. A lot of the work that we do is done indoors, studying the material. So for every one day in the field, give or take, we have to spend five or six times that amount of time working in the lab, in the museum, working in our offices, analyzing the data. And this is particularly important because what we do is essentially uh, a kind of destructive science. You can't re-excavate something that's already been excavated. So as you're taking something out of the ground, you've got to be very careful about how you document the information. And also, you have to make sure you make that information available, both in the scientific reports and also out to the public. Because what you're doing when you're excavating is you're removing things from the ground and that can never be reconstructed again. So this is why we spend so much time outside of the field and in the office preparing reports, trying to put together museum exhibits, all of these things that once we've excavated our site, we can share it with the world. On September 11th, 2017, it was discovered that Hurricane Irma had dislodged a canoe and washed it ashore from the Indian River in Cocoa, Florida. The 15-foot, 700-pound canoe captured the public's imagination. The story made the front page of the Wall Street Journal, was published in Smithsonian Magazine, and went viral on social media. The fact that the canoe was challenging for archaeologists to date and analyze just added to the canoe's mystique. Carla Hayden. I was lucky enough to get a sample of that canoe, and I was really excited because uh, I grew up in Florida. So to see this was just, I don't know, it was really cool for me to actually get to radiocarbon date it. When we got the results, I knew that it was going to be kind of an interesting thing to explain because rather than being able to say, oh, this canoe dates to exactly this year AD, we ended up with kind of three discrete possible ranges. So it kind of added to the mystery of how old this canoe was rather than giving a definitive answer. Dendrochronologist Laura Smith from the University of Tennessee Laboratory of Tree Ring Science also had difficulty dating the Irma canoe. One of the issues with the Irma canoe is that it's red, red cedar, which is quite unusual. I guess this is the only canoe in the state of Florida that they've recorded of this species. And there aren't red cedar chronologies in Florida. So that's kind of an issue we've come up against. We're going to try to date it against bald cypress and pine, but because different tree species, they're reacting to the environment a little bit differently than one another, it's a little bit more difficult to do the cross-dating cross-species. Testing continues on the Irma canoe, but so far the results show that it might have been created in the 1600s, but it could also have been made after 1930. People in modern times have continued to create and use dugout canoes, particularly the Seminole tribe of Florida. Pedro Zapata is a Seminole canoe maker. I have a uh, model canoe. I think it's about three feet long. And it's uh, you know typical to, to what we've been making you know for at least the last 100, 120 years. Um, you know we have a raised bow on it and it's uh, pointed. And it helps us you know push through the sawgrass and. Um, you know, I was always told that we um, borrowed that design from the Spanish ships when they started coming into Florida. Um, and so it's actually, you know, a, um, you know, adaptation of European boat design. Um, our older boats were um, 
much more flatter. I guess the, the bow and stern were identical and kind of looked like um, an upturned duck bill, I guess is the best way to describe the shape of the ends of the, the older canoes. Um, at least what I've been told through, through oral history. Um, you know, because there's unfortunately not really many examples of, of seminal canoes before about, you know, 1920 or so, or at least even photos of them. You've, there's a few from the, like the 1890s, a few photos, and then before that there's no uh, museum examples or photography of, of canoes, seminal canoes before then, so we're not sure exactly, you know, how many, you know, tribal, seminal tribal groups were using that design. Um, you know, and if that changed at any point or if we've been using it for hundreds of years. Prehistoric and historic canoes continue to emerge from the muck and mud around Florida's waterways, catching the attention of both the public and archaeologists. Steve Karasik and Julie Duggins from the Florida Bureau of Archaeological Research. What we hope to be able to figure out is how these canoes may have been decorated. And this is, um, this is more than just getting a sense of the aesthetic. We know that uh, especially in the prehistoric period that colors and paints were particularly important to people living in Florida and throughout North America. And the idea that someone would spend hundreds of hours producing one of these canoes, and this is what it would take, it's a massive labor investment. We're not just looking at an important means of transportation, but people are, are spending hundreds of hours making these things. And, and with that comes a sense of um, identity, a sense of uh, importance that comes along with the artifact. And so we suspect that they were also uh, embellishing them, uh, decorating them. And, and these decorations would have been more than just aesthetic. They would have been um, lending further sense of identity and importance uh, to these, these artifacts. And so when we step back from just trying to reconstruct what the canoe would have looked like to the larger anthropological questions of what this might have meant to the people using it, then I think we can really start getting at some very interesting questions. It's exciting when the public gets excited about canoe research and it's really fun because we don't have to sell it. It's just by nature pretty thrilling to Floridians to learn about something like boats, boat making and this tradition that goes back thousands of years. We've got the highest concentration of dugout canoes in the world here. We have the highest number of boat registrations in the U.S. We have the largest number of fishing licenses in the U.S. and Floridians love their boats and I think that capturing their imagination and using Whatever method it might take to feed that enthusiasm is what archaeologists are trying to do. For more information on canoe archaeology in Florida, watch episode 24 of the television series Florida Frontiers, presented by the Florida Historical Society. Check your local PBS schedule or go to myfloridahistory.org. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. I'm Ben Broatmarkle. 
Visit us anytime on the web at myfloridahistory.org to find out about upcoming events, shop for great books on Florida history and culture, subscribe to our journal, The Florida Historical Quarterly, and much more. That's myfloridahistory.org. Joining us now is Ben DiBiase, Director of Educational Resources for the Florida Historical Society and Archivist at the Library of Florida History in Cocoa. Ben, Christianity first came to Florida more than 500 years ago with the Spanish, and since then, others have brought a variety of Christian denominations to the state. Yeah, that's right, Ben. The beginning of the 16th century, almost every Spanish expedition brought with them a priest, and the attempt was to uh, spread the Roman Catholic faith uh, throughout the New World, throughout Florida. But it wasn't until the mid-16th century, actually in 1564, that the French Huguenots, who were uh, fleeing Europe, actually brought the Protestant faith, the first of the non-Catholic faiths, to the New World. They set up the Fort Caroline colony, which is near present-day Jacksonville in northeast Florida. only survived for about a year because the Spanish, as soon as they got wind of this new colony, sent Pedro Menendez de Aviles to wipe out uh, who they termed as heretics, the uh, Fort Caroline colony. And in doing so, they set up what is now St. Augustine. So the Spanish settlement of St. Augustine was established in 1565, and it began uh, almost two centuries of Spanish colonial rule of Florida, but also the Spanish uh, colonial Catholic, Roman Catholic faith in Florida. It wasn't until 1763 when the British took over Florida at the end of the French and Indian War, that the English brought with them another form of the Protestant religion in the form of the Church of England. For that 20-year period between 1763 and 1783, the British set up a number of churches in uh, major cities in St. Augustine and Pensacola, but also in some of the newer frontier outposts. One in particular was New Smyrna, which was an attempt at a colony uh, in what is now present-day Volusia County. Unfortunately, it, it failed, but they did send priests from St. Augustine to, to bring the, the Church of England, to bring that form of the Protestant religion to that part of the southern peninsula, so as far south as, as say, Volusia County. Now, in 1783, the Spanish took over Florida again. It became what we call the Second Spanish Period, and very few of the English stayed behind. So the Spanish then brought with them uh, the, the Roman Catholic faith for another few decades. And then in 1821, the Americans brought in a number of other faiths, including several different Protestant faiths. Uh, One in particular was the Episcopal faith that began in in 1821. And in 1824, when Tallahassee was established, the Episcopal Church actually set up a church in Tallahassee, which was very much a rural frontier outpost. But there were Episcopal churches in Pensacola, and uh, soon after, in the 1830s, 1840s, there was a church in Key West. So they really tried in earnest to establish uh, churches and parishes throughout the interior of Florida, even though the population of Florida at that time was still very, very small, and there were very few inhabitants throughout the interior, there was a very concerted effort on the part of the Episcopal Church, at least during this territorial period prior to 1845, to establish churches and to to build up some kind of of congregation in, in the territory of Florida. Now, you have here from the Florida Historical Society Collection a series of early 20th century newsletters from the Episcopal Church. 
Yeah, that's right, Ben. What we're looking at today, this is actually a monthly newsletter called The Palm Branch that's uh, actually produced by the Bishop of Southern Florida. So by the beginning of the 20th century, the Episcopal Church had grown so fast that they uh, not only established a diocese of Florida after the uh, Florida became a state in 1845, but they had to then further break up the uh, organizational structure into a southern district of Florida. The southern district was based out of Orlando, and that's actually where this newsletter was printed. And and these were hand-printed. Like I said, this is a monthly publication, and it's really interesting. It has a very nice kind of a interesting cover with a palm tree and, you know, very Florida kind of cover. And of course, there's, you know, a lot of connection to the palm branch and, and the Christian faith, and of course, the cabbage palm being the state tree of Florida. So there's kind of an interesting connection there. Um, but we have several issues, and, and the, the run actually dates in the FHS collection, dates from 1915 until about 1938. And that covers an interesting period throughout Florida's history. It covers the, the Roaring Twenties, uh, when Florida's population experienced a tremendous boom. And a lot of people coming into Florida were from other states up north, and a lot of people brought with them their faith. They brought with them their form of, of Christian faith. And for many, that was Catholicism, but it was also the Episcopal faith, the Methodist faith, the Baptist faith, things like that. So you saw a tremendous growth in religious activity throughout the state of Florida. And you can see that evidenced in these particular newsletters for the Episcopal faith. If you flip through, we'll see that there are, you know, kind of some, some basic business-related matters, types of, you know, money that was coming in and, and new church buildings that were going up. But there's a lot of great information about individual parishioners. So this is a wonderful resource for genealogical research, for instance, or, or even delving into research about this period of development in Florida's history. We have a lot of names. We can trace where people are. They kept very good records, um, and a lot of that is evident in these uh, monthly newsletters. Some of the bishops would write diaries, entries, and they would explain what life was like, what was happening on the ground in Florida, when most parts of Florida, I mentioned before in the, in the 19th century when the Episcopal Episcopal Church was setting up a lot of the churches that it was very rural. Well, even into the 20th century, there were areas in Florida where uh, churches existed, but but the population was still fairly rural. And a lot of these priests still had to uh, travel great distances uh, to visit some of the churches that we would call circuit riders. They had to kind of ride the circuit. It may take them a month to visit all of their parishes. And you can see their story told through a lot of these newsletters. Now, if people want to see these newsletters, they can make an appointment with you to come here to the Library of Florida History, but they can also get a glimpse of them online. Yeah, that's right. We're going to include some images. So all of the things I've been describing will be featured in our web extras on the FHS website. So you can actually see what we're talking about. Great. Thanks, Ben. Sure. Thank you. Ben DiBiase is Director of Educational Resources for the Florida Historical Society and Archivist at the Library of Florida History in Cocoa. This is Florida Frontiers. Kayla Campana is a student in the public history program at the University of Central Florida. She has this look at the Veterans Legacy Program. The Veterans Legacy Program is a national program instituted by the National Cemetery Administration, which is part of the Veterans Administration. The goal, I think broadly conceived, is to help the public gain a greater appreciation of national military cemeteries across the United States. 
They want to help people make personal connections to these cemeteries. And in order to do this, they fostered a collaboration among not just the National Cemetery Administration, but universities such as the University of Central Florida, undergraduate students, graduate students, K-12 educators, and K-12 students. And we're all working together to enable people to get a better understanding, in our particular instance, of the Florida National Cemetery at Bushnell. That was historian Dr. John Satcher from the University of Central Florida. The History Department at UCF recently partnered with the Department of Veterans Affairs to bring veterans' stories to life through the Veterans Legacy Program. UCF's team worked with Florida National Cemetery in Bushnell, Florida, one of 135 cemeteries overseen by the National Cemetery Administration. In May 2017, the Veterans Legacy Program hosted a field trip at Florida National Cemetery. During this day of learning, UCF faculty, staff, and students taught 7th graders about the sacrifices and the lived experiences of veterans. Dr. Satcher tells us more about the field trip. It's one thing for me to say there are 150,000 people buried at the cemetery, but that doesn't compare to actually standing out there, looking in every direction and seeing sort of endless tombstones. So we thought if we could bring out K through 12 students and their teachers and actually a few parents, um, we could make this a much more meaningful experience. So we had 150 students from the Davenport School of the Arts come out to the cemetery for a field trip, and we gave them an experience they would never forget. The day started with a program which included a trumpet playing taps, which is almost guaranteed to give everyone their goosebumps. Then what we did is we divided the students into 12 groups and they proceeded through 12 stations, lives and legacies, which were really biographies of some of the people who are buried there, and learning stations, which talked about the wars America's fought in. It enabled the students to write thank you notes to veterans. It enabled students to learn about national cemeteries. It enabled students to learn about the religious symbols that are on the gravestones. Students from the University of Central Florida also wrote biographies for over 100 veterans in Florida National Cemetery. The biographies contain harrowing stories of veterans from all walks of life, from every branch of military, and from all over the world who are now memorialized at Florida National Cemetery. The website features the biographies as well as K-12 classroom materials and instructions for how to download an augmented reality app that allows visitors in Florida National Cemetery to read veteran biographies while standing at individual project grave sites or virtually off-site. Dr. Satcher explains what the students learned from the field trip experience. First and foremost, they were struck by the personal stories. Here are soldiers who, if they didn't live in Tampa or Orlando or St. Pete before the war, they retired to Florida, as many Americans do. It enabled students to appreciate that the old man down the street might be a veteran. So I think it is the personal connection that really brings history to life and makes history interesting to the students. History is not something that occurs in a far-off place in a far-off time. History is something that is still alive for them today. Through the Veterans Legacy Program, the students discover that every veteran in Florida National Cemetery has a unique story. Cemeteries themselves, I think, are shrouded in emotion, and they tell a very basic history. Picture yourself looking at a tombstone. A tombstone has a name, it has a birth date, a dash, a death date. They probably have their rank, their branch of service, uh, what conflicts they served in. What the Veterans Legacy Program does is sort of tell the story about the dash between those dates. If you have someone who was born on March 15th, 1898 and died on November 17th, 1974, well, that dash represents a lot of time. That dash represents their family life, 
their jobs before and after the war, whether they were immigrants, whether they were children of immigrants. What the Veterans Legacy Program does is it fills in the dash with all those interesting details that are part of human life. And it is this story, I think, which makes the connection between people and their nation and their state's history. And it's a story which helps understand why these cemeteries are, in the words of the National Cemetery Administration, shrines to the gallant dead. To read the biographies of more than 100 veterans from Florida National Cemetery, visit www.vlp.cah.ucf.edu. For Florida Frontiers, I'm Kayla Campana, a student in the Public History Program at the University of Central Florida. You've been listening to Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. Please join us right here again next week. Until then, you can visit us anytime on the web at myfloridahistory.org and find us on Facebook. Production assistance for Florida Frontiers comes from Ben DiBiase and Robert Casanello. The program is edited by John White. Have a great week. I'm Ben Broatmarkle. Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Department of State Division of Historical Resources and the State of Florida. It's also made possible by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund, the Rossiter House Museum and Gardens in O'Galley, and by Florida's Space Coast Office of Tourism, representing destinations from Titusville to Cocoa Beach to Melbourne Beach.